Okay, so we're still at the point of talking about um, memory storage um, and how information is organized in memory. And just been talking about um, uh, how your brain is tuned to notice certain information um, uh, when it judges that information to be meaningful and how information is connected to other information in our memory. So where we left off was looking at an association network, a uh, connection of related ideas. And we looked at some of the implications of that, uh, ideas of spreading activation, ideas of um, uh, using a thinking around it strategy for retrieval, uh, and also the fact that uh, every person's association network is going to be different, uh, in a sense, depending upon that person's knowledge and experience and interests, right? Now, um, I want to tell you, uh, take this a little bit further. So far, we've been kind of talking about how this would be arranged uh, conceptually. Uh, the, um, the idea of an association network, you know, that I guess that picture sort of makes sense of connecting ideas um, in the brain, and that seems to hold true. But, um, but the question here uh, that I want to raise is, how is this actually represented in the physical brain itself, right? How does this map onto brain parts? so to speak, right? Um, so uh, I'll tell you this. When I was in your shoes, when I was in your seat, um, when I was taking psychology for the first time 30 years ago, um, the, the theory at the time was that each of these nodes in the association network um, represents an individual neuron in the brain. And this was actually referred to as the grandmother neuron theory the grandmother neuron, with the idea that for any idea that you have, including the idea of your grandmother, that there would be this one neuron that represents your grandmother, and when you're thinking of your grandmother, that one's active. When you're not, it's not, right? The grandmother neuron theory is wrong. Um, <clears throat> we know that that's not uh, how this network works. Um, I guess you could see why they might have thought that. Here in the uh, association network, we've got uh, an interconnection of these nodes, and we know that, you know, neurons are interconnected, right? So I guess it might make sense for them to think that that might be the way it works. It actually didn't take very long to figure out, though, that wasn't the way that the brain actually works. The true story is um, more complex, but it also allows for an immensely larger amount of memory storage. Okay, um, the true story seems to be that each node uh, in the association network is not represented by one neuron, but by a pattern of activation of a collection of neurons, not even necessarily neurons that are uh, close, uh, closely, uh, in close proximity to one another. Um, there might be, for example, for your idea of grandmother, um, a pattern of maybe 12 or 72 or 147 neurons that when all those are essentially lit up at the same time, then that that represents your idea of grandmother. So the, so the connections then are not between individual neurons, so to speak, but connections between patterns of neural activation. Now, that's admittedly a lot more complex than if uh, each of these were just um, uh, a neuron by itself. But it also allows for an immensely um, increased amount of information that could be stored in the brain. Because each of those neurons that's, um, that may be in a pattern of activation related to a particular idea like your grandmother or a fire engine or an ambulance um, can also be a part of other patterns of activation.
It doesn't have to only be part of one pattern of activation. Um, there could be some overlap in neurons between uh, the pattern of activation for your idea of fire engine and your idea of something relatively unrelated, like grandmother. Um, notice that this means that the, uh, the amount of nodes that could be stored in the human brain isn't, strictly speaking, limited by the number of neurons. Now, there are billions of neurons, but then that allows for billions and billions of patterns of interconnection for each of those neurons. Uh, and so here's where we get to some of those astronomical figures in terms of the estimated storage capacity of long-term memory. Now, I'd asked you earlier uh, to just trust me, uh, you know, when I told you that, um, that we seem to have unlimited capacity for storage in long-term memory. Well, here's where um, I'm making the case to actually argue that, and that's because of how we know information is stored, that it's virtually unlimited. I mean, you know, some computer guy uh, estimated the storage capacity, and again, it was some sort of uh, phenomenal astronomical number. Um, but this um, this idea uh, kind of gets to why we can um, store so much information, even though we're limited in the number of neurons that we have. It's a big number, but it's limited. Right? So um, don't worry about running out of storage space in your brain. Um, there's plenty of room. Let's see, uh, if we move next to um, uh, types of information in long-term storage. I've mentioned some of these types before, but we've got to make it really clear about the different types of information that are in long-term memory. And what we're moving towards is uh, where these different kinds of memory are stored in your brain. So, um, so this is a nice graphic. Actually, I don't have a figure number on it. Um, uh, but anyway, uh, it's on my slide number 13, and it's from your textbook. Uh, essentially, uh, kind of a flow chart, uh, long-term storage broken up into explicit memory and implicit memory, and each of those broken up into a type of memory. Okay, so let's look at these. Uh, so all the information in, long -term, in your long-term memory, memory can be separated into two different types first at the first level. It's either explicit memory or it's implicit memory. Now explicit here, explicit memory, is memory for stuff that we can consciously remember. Um, there, there's another word, an older term for explicit memory that I think is a useful term, uh, so I'll give it to you. Um, the older term for explicit memory is declarative memory. And the reason I think that's a good term for it is that this is memory that we can easily declare. We can put it into words. Um, memory for stuff that's happened in our lives or just stuff that we know. It's not actually stored in words, but it's easy to convert into words and we can... Um, uh, speak it, we can declare it. Let's go to the other side real quick uh, for implicit memory, which is also known as non-declarative memory. And implicit memory is our um, memory connections that are certainly in our brain, um, but it's very difficult or impossible for us to put them into words. This is going to be our memory for associations between things and our memory for patterns of movement, like how to ride a bike or how to uh, dance the Macarena or um, how to uh, do a um, karate move or something like that, right? Those are things that are certainly stored in your memory memory, if you've learned those things, uh, um, but they're not stored in words. It would be very difficult to explain them or tell somebody how to do them just using words. Uh, and so all this is called implicit or, again, the old term is non-declarative memory. 
So that's our first level uh, for long-term storage. It's either explicit, that is declarative, or implicit, non-declarative. Each of these, there's a few types of them. Let's go to uh, explicit memory first. The two types there are episodic memory and semantic memory. Uh, semantic memory is your memory for facts and figures, stuff that you know, but you don't necessarily know where you learned it or why you know it or anything like that. Uh, you know, what's the capital city of Peru? You know that, right? Okay, I'll tell you, it's Lima. Um, <laughs> I don't know why I picked Peru. Anyway, um, what's the capital city of North Carolina? You know that, um, and you don't necessarily know when or why you remember that. You may be able to think, oh, we probably learned that in the third grade or whatever. But um, uh, but the, um, the when isn't important. It's just the knowledge that you have. So kind of free-floating facts and knowledge. On the other hand, episodic memory is memory for information where order is important. Uh, now, this diagram and your textbook talk about episodic memory purely in terms of memory for our own lives, uh, which you might also think of as autobiographical memory. And that's certainly a kind of uh, episodic memory. You know, you remember things in a particular order. Oh, this happened and we lived here, and then we moved to this place, and then I went to that other school. You know, things happen in, happen in your memory in a particular order, and order is important. So notice that in episodic memory, uh, not only are you remembering the stuff of the memory, but you're also remembering some time tag that is something that relates it to a particular time or relates it to a before or after something else, some particular order. Right? Whereas you don't need that time tag for semantic memory. Of course, episodic memory isn't just about our own personally experienced events and autobi autobiographical memory. It's for anything where order is important. Um, if you were to try to remember, you know, the plot of a movie you saw, well, order is important, right? It's not like you just got a mix of a mishmash of facts, uh, and you've got a story. Order is ne necessarily important. And so you tend to remember that this happened before this, and that happened before the next thing. And so that's also going to be stored in episodic memory. Um, <clears throat> okay. So, uh, those are two kinds of explicit memory. Now, we've already seen some things about where, about how those kinds of explicit memory may be stored. Um, uh, semantic memories, which aren't time-tagged, are probably stored in things like association networks. Uh, remember those networks of related ideas uh, with connections among them. Right? Episodic memory, where, uh, in, oh, I'm sorry, where order is important, is probably more likely to be stored in things like uh, uh, schemas, um, collections of events. Remember the scripts that are typical for what you do at work or what's typical for what you do when you go out to eat at a restaurant, right? Um, and so that there's episodes involved. If we move to the other side, to implicit memory, remember that's also called non-declarative, and it's information that we have in memory, but we don't really have it in words, and we don't always know that we have it in, uh, in our memory. Two kinds here. Uh, one we've talked about already, uh, classical conditioning. If you think about it, classical conditioning certainly involves some memory uh, uh, in that um, you're making an association between things. Uh, you see the sign of a restaurant where you got really ill and you feel sick to your stomach. Well, yeah, you're remembering something. 
but it's implicit memory. You're not necessarily fully consciously remembering, ah, that's the place where I got sick, and so it makes me feel yucky. But just the association is there, and so you get that sort of gut-level feeling of, ugh, uh, or something like that, right? And so that's classical conditioning. Classical conditioning, then, uh, uh, information is going to be stored and held in implicit memory. This is an idea that we saw already when we were talking about classical conditioning that, yeah, sometimes you can go back and think, okay, I'm feeling this way because of that association, and then you're realizing it. But it's not always that way. You know, you, you go into your grandma's house, you go into your grandma's kitchen, and suddenly you're hungry. And you don't think, wow, I'm hungry because of all the good meals I've eaten in grandma's kitchen. You're just hungry, and you just get that sort of response, right? So that's implicit memory. The other kind of implicit memory um, uh, besides classical conditioning is procedural memory. And this is uh, our memory for um, habits and movements, uh, usually complex movements. Uh, I think I threw out some of them before, like um, like riding a bike or uh, doing a dance, um, uh, the Macarena, as it is, or um, a uh, karate movement or something like that. Um, essentially, these are things that uh, you learn at some point. It's coded for in your, it's coded in your brain, and it's stored in your memory. Um, but it's not stored in words, and it's very difficult to put it into words. Uh, so your memory for procedures, even things like walking, you had to learn to walk, um, and once you did, that um, uh, that got stored in your procedural memory. Now, um, I made the point uh, in an earlier recording that um, uh, that we were going to talk about the idea that different kinds of information are stored in different ways in the brain, and that's what we've been doing. We've got to look at the fact that these are stored in different places in the brain as well, uh, and this is where we can get to, um, you know, some kind of weird things happening sometimes, where uh, uh, it's possible for somebody to have some brain damage so that they can't remember that they ever took piano lessons in their life, and yet they may remember how to play the piano, right? Um, different kinds of information. Uh, rem remembering that you took piano lessons is liable to be explicit memory, specifically episodic. Remembering how to play the piano is going to be procedural memory. Um, and so those are stored in different ways and in different places in the brain which is what we get to on the next slide, uh, number four, slide number 14, which is actually, uh, this one has a figure number, uh, figure 7.20 in your textbook, 7.20. Locations of memory storage. Going back to some parts of the brain. Some of these we've already seen. Um, uh, if we start at the back of the brain um, and the bottom, we've got the cerebellum. Uh, cerebellum is responsible for a lot of implicit memory, particularly procedural memory. <clears throat> and we saw this when we originally talked about the cerebellum. We talked about it then in terms of motor programs, that when you learn how to ride a bike or walk, then that motor program gets stored in your cerebellum, and uh, you can retrieve it th from there uh, when you want to do that task again. Right? Uh, let's see, um, this diagram has the hippocampus labeled as for spatial memory, and that's true. It is responsible for some things related to remembering three things in three-dimensional space. Um, it's also going to be responsible for coding a lot of stuff in, uh, in our explicit memory, um, uh, events of our lives and things that we learn. Uh, it's going to put it in other places in the brain to store it. Uh, so the hippocampus, if you recall, 
from when we talked about parts of the brain, it's not where information is stored. It's the organ that does the storing. And to a large extent, it's going to be doing a lot of that storing diffusely throughout the, the cerebral cortex, uh, including uh, like in this diagram, uh, it's labeled as the temporal lobe, you know, peeking out from the other side uh, in green. Uh, the amygdala, um, responsible for some implicit learning, particularly uh, some associative learning with uh, like uh, classical conditioning uh, with fears. Um, you know, you get bit by a snake and you make the association of snakes and fear, um, and that's happening in the amygdala. Um, <clears throat> then we see very, at the very front of the brain, the prefrontal cortex. Prefrontal cortex responsible largely for working memory. Working memory. We haven't talked about that in a, in a little while now, but working memory is the other term for short-term memory, and that's essentially your mental blackboard, in a sense, of what you're actively thinking about at, at the moment. So notice that that's um, one of the last things to develop in the brain is the prefrontal cortex. Uh, so people get better at being able to actively direct their attention as their brains mature, uh, which you know can happen up until the age of 24, 25. Um, and when they are um, actively thinking about things in their brain and using that information, uh, that's mostly gonna be happening in uh, working memory in that prefrontal cortex, right? Uh, some um, there's a computer analogy that's useful here if you uh, if you like computer analogies that um, that essentially working memory is similar to um, memory in a computer essentially the RAM uh, which you would think of as how much the computer is able to think of or keep active at the time whereas uh, a lot of the rest of the brain including long-term memory is going to be more in terms of um, memory storage um, uh, um, that um, that information is held there for a long time, like uh, a hard drive on your computer, or or if you're storing something in the cloud, which is really means you're storing it on somebody else's hard drive somewhere else. Uh, anyway, so a difference between memory and storage in computers uh, is a difference between short-term memory and long-term memory.